So turn uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 50, if you haven't already. Uh, it reads as follows. A Psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence, for before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or a, a goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the, the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep the company of adulterers. You Give your mouth free reign for evil, you, your tongue frames deceit, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I, I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50 is a really different psalm. One of the reasons why we're committed to preach through every psalm is because... Normally, a psalm like Psalm 50 would get skipped over. Because it's a psalm about God as judge. And normally, psalms involve people singing to God. Great are you, Lord. We worship you. We praise your name. Normally, psalms, it's sort of like a hymn book for us. It's a script for prayer and for worship. It's people talking to God. But Psalm 50 is actually God talking to us. And he's talking to us as judge. And we don't, really, we don't really talk that much about God as judge. Sometimes when we're doing evangelism and we're trying to tell people the good news of the gospel, we, we talk about the reality of judgment, but we, we, we tend to think about 
the gospel of Jesus is in that some way that now we no longer, now because Jesus died for us and paid the penalty for us, we no longer have to relate to God as judge. But listen, God is eternal and unchanging. And he was judge and he is judge and he always will be judge. And the mission statement of our church is to, is to, is to, fulfill the, to, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission and the spirit of the great commandment. The great commission is at the end of Matthew where Jesus said, go and make disciples. And so we're, we're called to make disciples and we're supposed to do it in a certain way in accordance with the great commandment, which is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so if we are going to truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're going to love God with all that we are, we have to love God understanding all that he is. And yeah, it's true. Many of us, when we think about relating to God, we prefer thinking of him as father or savior or redeemer or creator or king. But he's judge. We don't have a lot of songs, you know. You're a good, good judge. It's who you are. Right? We don't, we don't have a lot of songs delighting in, worshiping God for being a judge, for being our judge. But that's what Psalm 50 is about. It's a psalm of worship about God as judge. It's written by an individual named Asaph. You can see that. That's part of the inspired text at the beginning of the of verse 1. Asaph was a contemporary of David. In uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 31 to 39, it talks about Asaph and his brother He-Man. I think He-Man got the cooler name. Um, they were sons of Korah. And it's interesting that Psalm, 49, or Psalm 50 comes right after Psalm 42 through 49, which is the sons of Korah section of the book of Psalms. And so it's pictured like Asaph and He-Man. They were kind of part of the musical group, the Sons of Korah. And, and this Psalm 50, it's sort of like his solo project, right? So some of us grew up, you know, listening to Genesis. And then off went Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. Some of you are thinking, what, who, what are you talking about? Okay, some of us grew up listening to NSYNC. And then now Justin Timberlake has gone off on you. You're like, you're, you're still losing me. Okay, some of you grew up listening to The Wiggles. And picture this just being Jeff, okay? So this is like a solo approach. He's part of the group, Sons of Korah. But he's, he's going out solo. And he actually became quite well known. And Hezekiah, when he was leading a worship service in Second Chronicles chapter 29, it says that they had a worship service and they sang songs written by David and by Asaph. So he wrote Psalm 50. He also wrote uh, Psalm 73 through... Um, uh, 83, so I think in 2026 we'll get to those. And he was involved in the dedication of the temple, and whenever he's mentioned, it talks about him playing the cymbal. So he was, he was kind of like a drummer. So that's what we know about Asaph. And this psalm is really unique, again, because it, it kind of, the way it's worded, it kind of feels less like it's like a song. It feels more like it belongs in the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah, because God is acting as judge, but part of worshiping God involves understanding that he is judge. So look at verse 1. It says, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He's not talking about all day. He's talking about the whole planet. 
He wants everyone to know that he is the judge from the east to the west. He's calling to people from all over and he's calling them to a specific place, verse 2, out of Zion. Zion is the word used to describe the, the, the epicenter of the presence of God. Sometimes it's used to describe the temple or the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's used to describe some place in heaven. He's calling the whole world to enter into his presence, to come into his courtroom, into the gallery, to, to witness this trial that is going to take place. And look at how he describes Zion. He describes it as the perfection of beauty. That when we come into his courtroom, it is the most beautiful place. And so just, I put in your handouts, just seeing God as judge. That, that's nothing to, nothing to jot down at this point, but just think about it. That Zion, God's courtroom, where he invites us, is the perfection of beauty. Hopefully, you've had an opportunity at some point this summer to see something beautiful. Maybe you're visiting another city, so you're going to some different tourist traps. Maybe you found yourself in a museum or an art gallery, and you were just, you stood in awe of just a beautiful piece of work. Maybe you found yourself on a, on a beach or on a dock or on a trail, and you just looked out at God's creation, and you saw something, something so beautiful. Maybe you looked in the eyes of your spouse or a loved one or a son or a daughter, a mother, whatever it may be, and you, you, you saw Beauty, not just not just the skin deep, not just a skin deep beauty, but a, a beauty that has depth. That, that when you look at creation, it's it's not just that it's aesthetically pleasing. When you look at a fine piece of art or listen to a beautiful piece of music, it's, there's something there's something rich, there's something deep there. Now, the psalm here says that God is the perfection of beauty. That everything beautiful, every expression and experience of beauty finds its ultimate form, its apex, in the presence of God. Every time we see something beautiful, not just surface level beautiful, but truly beautiful, it is pointing us to the perfection of beauty, the very presence of God. Verse 3 says, our God comes, he does not keep silent. It says, before him is a devouring fire. So it's, it's beautiful, but there's, there's also this, this holy caution. It's, it's a devouring fire. It's a tempest. There's this storm. There's thunder and lightning. There's clouds. There's smoke. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge. But he didn't come to judge the whole earth. He invited the whole earth to come, but look, it says he came to judge his people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, judgment must begin at the household of God. Verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. You see, this is interesting. Too often when we think about God as judge, we think about him as judging unbelievers. Judging people who aren't part of the covenant community. But Psalm 50 is God coming forward. He wants the whole world to hear, but he's coming to specifically judge his people. And loved ones, this is good news. Because when God judges his people, when we relate to God as a judge, he doesn't judge us to condemn. He judges to correct. There's a huge difference between condemnation and correction. 
And God here is cautioning his people. He sees the trajectory that they're on. And as a loving judge who sees all and knows all, he says, hey, hey, you guys, come and listen. Come and listen to this judgment. And by the way, all the rest of the world can listen in as well. Verse 6 says, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So Asaph's aim here in writing this psalm is to help us to see God as judge. And then he puts a selah, which is probably a musical term. It, it, the closest translation of selah is to lift up. And so there's a key change or a musical interlude or something to sort of set the stage. So now we have this vision of God, the perfection of beauty. There's fire. There's a storm. He's speaking. And then there's a pause. And when God lays out his judgment, he's going to lay out three reasons why it is good for us to relate to God as judge. And here's the first one. Seeing God as judge prevents superficial worship. It prevents superficial worship. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. He's not only the judge, he's also the witness who's testifying. He says, I am God, your God. We, we've got a relationship with one another. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. So God tells them, hey, listen, as far as sacrifices go, you guys are on it. I, he says, verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. As far as following the book of Leviticus, they're doing it 100%. Nothing is wrong with the, with the animals that are being brought forward, with the way that they're being slaughtered, with the way that they're being burned. The, the sacrifice is happening. And that's not what God has issues with. He has issues with that's all that's happening. And he is concerned with them. These are his covenant people. And his relationship with them was supposed to be more than just superficial. Can we get Exodus 24 on the, uh, on the screen here? It says, it says, then this is Moses. It says, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. If you look back at verse 5 in Psalm 50, it says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This is the sacrifice. This is how the relationship between God and his people began. Moses wrote down the Ten Commandments and all of the case law that followed it. He wrote it in a book. He read it to them. And they all said, we will do what God says. We will, we will enter into this covenant, this contract, this agreement. And then Moses did something quite bizarre. Some animals had been slaughtered and he threw blood on the people. Y'all glad we don't still carry, carry out that practice on Sunday mornings? And what the people of Israel were saying is, this is the blood of the covenant. If we break God's law... In light of how God has been so gracious to us, we deserve to die like these animals died. And that began the sacrificial system 
that they're following right here. God says, listen, I don't have a problem with the, with the sacrifice. Now, as New Testament Christians, we need to do some hermeneutical hard work to think because we don't, no one came to church today with a goat in your trunk. Um, no, you didn't come with a turtle dove in your, in your purse to offer as a sacrifice. Why? Because we believe Jesus made a sacrifice once for all. Amen? And it's interesting, on the, on the night of the Lord, Last Supper, look at what Jesus said. He said, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And so, yes, it's true that when we read Psalm 50, we can't make a direct application to our lives because we don't make those kinds of sacrifices anymore. But we are still part of God's covenant community, part of the new covenant in Christ because he made that sacrifice for us. And so as we look at verse 8, he says, not for your sacrifices do we, he's, he's not saying stop that, he's saying keep it going, but it's their perspective. Notice the word your in verse 9, and then the word mine in verses 10 and 11. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house, or goats from your folds. He says, because every beast of the forest is mine. Everything that moves in the field is mine. You see, they had the wrong idea of worship. They thought that they were bringing their animal to worship. But what they were bringing was God's animal. It belonged to him. And they were somehow thinking, as you keep reading, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell. God says, I don't need these animals. You need these animals. God doesn't get hungry God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't need these kinds. And so they, they, ha- they were all mixed up in their thinking about worship, thinking that somehow God needed them. And God said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. This is just superficial. Have you even really thought deeply about what you're doing right now? God says, I own it all. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And God said, listen. Keep offering the sacrifices, but offer it with the right mentality, with the right frame of reference. In verse 14, he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So that when you come with your animal, one of the many animals that God has provided, don't come and think God needs this animal, but that I'm giving back to God what he has given to me. And this offering is a reflection of everything else that he has already freely offered to me. He wants a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He says, perform your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You see, what was happening here is they thought that by offering these sacrifices that somehow God needed, like thinking that he was hungry or thirsty or something, that when they needed God, they could say, well, I did make a sacrifice, God, so you do, you know, tit for tat. You know, I've got a little bit of leverage here, so we're going to bargain, we're going to negotiate this through. And God's like, what? If you need my help, I'm not going to help you because you sacrificed a goat. I'm going to help you because I'm the kind of God who helps his people. He just lays it out simply, verse 15, all you got to do, call upon me in the day of trouble. He says, I just want to relate to you. All I want you to do is call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what does this mean for us as Christians? So we we know, Christ has made the sacrifice. So 
how do we apply this passage? Well, in the New Testament, there's a bunch of passages that talk about making sacrifice. The most notable is Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, in some senses, our whole lives are supposed to be a sacrifice. But that's not that helpful in terms of concrete, rubber-hits-the-road examples. And so there's a couple of other passages. Philippians chapter 4, verse uh, 18 says, Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is talking about collecting an offering. And he uses sacrifice to describe financial giving. And so for, for a New Testament Christian, we don't sacrifice animals. But when we give financially our tithes and offerings, it's a sacrifice. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So our giving is a sacrifice. Also, our singing is considered a sacrifice. The fruit of lips that praise him. And then it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To do good, to share. So our serving is also a sacrifice. And so when we read Psalm 50... And God says, hey, your sacrifices are going well, but I'm concerned about the heart behind your sacrifice. This is the lens through which we can view this passage. How's our giving going? Are we giving? Why are we giving? Do we think that God is somehow short financially and needs us to top him up? Why are we singing? Do we think somehow God has low self-esteem and he needs us to pump his tires a little bit once a week? How is our serving? Do we go and teach those junior kindergartners and harvest kids or cut the grass because we're afraid that no one else will do it? God's not concerned that no one else will do it. What is our motivation for doing these things? Is it pressure from other people? Is it the appearances? Or do we think that we have something that God needs? Now notice also, sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is when we understand that we're doing something with the wrong motives, that we should just stop doing it altogether. You know, I was giving, but I realized I was giving for the wrong reason, so I stopped giving. I was serving, but I realized that my motivation wasn't good, so I stopped serving. I did used to sing in church, but then I just realized, you know, I'm just not going to sing anymore. Listen, what God is saying here is don't stop doing these things. He's saying just make sure that you check yourself. He's saying, Again, going back to verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. God doesn't want you to stop giving. He doesn't want you to stop serving or to stop singing. He just wants you to do these things with the right mentality, with the right attitude. You see, worship is thanking God for what he has given. The ability to give is a gift from God. The ability to sing to have our eyes open, to see Christ, to know who he is. That's a gift from God. The ability to serve, health and strength, the oxygen in our lungs, the food that gives us energy, all of these things are a gift from God. So we give these things to God because God has given to us. Worship is not merely bribing God so that he'll help us in the future. Worship is thanking God for what he has already done and trusting him that he will work in the future. 
And we should take a real encouragement from verse 15 where he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. So to those of us who are religious, who are giving and serving and singing often, we need to remind ourselves that when we come before the throne of God, we have no merit in and of ourselves. We should not come with a resume saying, God, I really need you to help me because I've gone to church every week this month. God, I've been serving, I've been giving, you've got to help me out. That's not, God says, just call to me. Don't tell me all the good things you've done. Don't brag about your sacrifices. Just simply call to me. So it's a caution to those of us who might be religious. Listen, it's also really encouraging to those of us who, like, this is our first time in church in, like, 10 years. Or never been to church at all. And look at, the, look, at the, look at what God says is required for him helping you. You want God to help you? You're in a desperate situation. Your marriage falling apart. you got an employment problem. you got a financial problem. you got a health problem. You think, I'm not like all these other religious types. I, I barely ever go to church. I don't have to listen. All it says is call to me and I will help you. Simple as that. Cry out to him today in simple faith. Trusting. Listen. It's not simply help me with this situation. You've got to involve yourself becoming one of the covenant people of God by sacrifice, believing in Jesus Christ. But it's not about earning favor or merit or cachet or leverage with God. You can call to him today and today can be the day of salvation for you. So seeing God as judge cuts through superficial worship. Secondly, it prevents hypocritical words it prevents hypocritical words now God's getting serious look at look at how he addresses his people in verse 16 but to the wicked God says what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips so these people they they knew all the bible answers they memorized the ten commandments they can recite his statutes They take the covenant on their lips. They've memorized Bible verses. They know all the right answers. He says, what right do you have to do that? Verse 17, he says, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So they can go to worship and say all the right things and and describe and articulate orthodox evangelical theology. But then they turn around and they cast the words behind them and they go off and live however they want. Why did they think they could do that? Because they thought, well, as long as I'm sacrificing and saying the right things, I'm covered. If I sin or live however I want to live, I know that I'm going to make a sacrifice to cover for it anyway. And God's like, that's not how I want to relate to you. You're my people. I'm your God. That's not how this is supposed to work. He describes how they've been living in verse 18. He says, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. If you keep, you keep company with adulterers, you give your, verse 19, you give your mouth free reign over evil. So they can quote all the commands, you know, you shall not steal, command number eight, but they see a thief and they approve. They know command number seven, you shall not commit adultery, but they keep company with adulterers. Verse, verse 19 and 20 is all about lips and speech and Command number nine is you shall not bear false witness. And so they can say all the commands, but they're not living it. There's a big gap between what they're saying and how they're living. That that gap is what hypocrisy is. And so God wants to prevent us from hypocritical words. So he comes to us as a judge who sees everything, who hears everything, and says, you gotta, you got to close the gap between what you're saying and how you're living. Notice how in verse 18, he's 
convicting them of being guilty of sin by association. He says that you see a thief and you are pleased with him. You, you keep company with adulterers. Derek Kinder calls this secondhand sin. Some of you may not be old enough to remember that you used to be able to smoke cigarettes in restaurants. Do you remember that? You used to go into like a, like a, a, a local establishment and, and, and not that kind of establishment. I'm just talking about a restaurant. And, and as soon as you open the door, you're just hit like with a wall of stale, gross cigarette smoke. But the crazy thing is, eventually... You just, you ignore it. You become, it becomes the air that you breathe and you don't even notice as you go along eating your meal. And then I, I noticed that afterwards, it wasn't until I was undressing and putting on my pajamas that I noticed how it had gotten into my clothes. And the other interesting thing is I, secondhand smoke always went to the closest layer. So if I was wearing like an undershirt and then a collared shirt and a sweater, it was when I got to the, it's odd, when I got to the undershirt, that was the one that smelled so much, like as if I'd been chain smoking for 10 decades. You see, the danger with secondhand smoke, it, I mean studies have shown this reason why they don't allow people to smoke in restaurants anymore is because it goes deeper than just our clothes, right? And we think, well, I'm not, I'm not smoking myself, so it's not affecting me. Sin is like that too. We can, we can feel at home in the world and the way the world does things. We can be pleased with thieves and in the company of adulterers. And feel right at home and think it's not affecting us, but it's getting right to the very core of who we are. And God is the judge who sees all and knows all. And he knows how secondhand sin affects our spiritual health. And so loved ones, secondhand sin can happen in terms of our relationships. You know, are we influencing them for Christ? Or are they influencing us towards the world? We always need to be asking ourselves that question. And the thing that's been on my mind as I've been studying this passage this week is, is our entertainment choices. And our social media uh, uh, interactions and where we go and where we look to. And the, the shows that we watch on Netflix. And are we being careful to guard ourselves against secondhand sin? To becoming so comfortable with the sewage that this world is continually spewing out. It affects us on a deeper level than we expect. Verse 19, you can see how it mentions mouth and tongue. And then verse 20, speak and slander. These are not sins of association. These are sins that every single human being on planet earth is guilty of. The book of James says, if anyone can control their tongue, they are a perfect person. So every single person, not everyone on planet earth will commit adultery. Not everyone on planet earth will commit murder. Not everyone on planet earth will bear false witness. Yes, they will all bear false witness. Everyone will lie, everyone will deceive, everyone will slander, everyone will speak against. It's something that every single human being deals with. It's, this is not secondhand sin, we all do this firsthand. He talks about sinning against, in verse 20, against our brother. You might be like, well I only have sisters, I'm an only child, I'm off the hook. Listen, you are part of the family of God. 
And sometimes in the family of God, our expectations of one another and what love will be like and what community will look like is so elevated because we expect Christians to act like Christ that when we're disappointed by a brother or a sister in Christ, we, we almost by default want to slander them or gossip about them or cut them down. But it's not to be that way. If our voices are able to recite the commands, if our voices are able to speak God's statutes, then our voices also should only speak that which is true and that which is edifying and helpful, especially when we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Proverbs it says, when words are many, sin is not absent. It's just the reality. It's just a matter of the economy of scale, supply and demand. When we talk a lot, we tend to sin a lot. So we need to be cautious about the, 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 the way that we speak, how often we speak, the content of what we are saying. God is the judge of those things. Jesus said that we will have to give an account for every careless word that we speak. With all of this mention about talking, then it talks about verse 21, is, and God's silence. So you guys are, God's saying, you're doing all this talking, you're slandering people, you're, you're gossiping about people. But then verse 21 says, these things you have done and I have been silent. God hasn't said anything. He's letting, he's letting us say all of these things. Then it says, you thought that I was one like yourself. Don't confuse the silence of God with the approval of God. Sometimes we get tempted and then there's that check in our spirit thinking, no, God is watching and he'll, he'll judge me if I do this. And then sometimes the temptation overtakes us. We believe the lies of the enemy and we jump into sin and we, wait, we almost wait like for the lightning bolt to hit us. But so often when we jump into sin, nothing happens. It's silence. Our life doesn't crumble yet. Our relationships don't break down yet. We're not fully addicted yet. And we can think, well, hey, you know, I did this and nothing happened to me, so I, I guess God is kind of okay with this. Sometimes God remains silent to let our situation get worse and worse and more desperate and more desperate so that we will truly know how dangerous sin is. But we need to be very careful. God wants us to be very clear. Don't confuse his silence with approval. And look at what he says. You thought that I was one like yourself. Really, what's gone wrong in Psalm 50 is the people, they have a wrong view of God. When it comes to worship and sacrifice, the wrong view of God is that God somehow needs this. That he's like us. We need things. We need food. We need drink. So maybe God needs these things. That's a wrong view of God. That's not who God is. And when it comes to our words, we think, well, maybe God's like us. I mean, I say things and I don't really mean it. Maybe God says things and he doesn't really mean it. I, I'm, I'm hypocritical. Maybe God in some way is hypocritical. I'm inconsistent. Maybe God, listen, God always means what he says. Sin will destroy your life every time. He's not like us. We're inconsistent. We're hypocritical. We say one thing, we do another. 
That's not who God is. He said it and that's the way it is. He says, I'm not, you thought, you thought wrong. You thought I was one like you. I'm not like you. And he says, but now I rebuke you. Now I'm talking, God says. Now that you've allowed your life to unravel. Now that you've seen the, the web and the evil of sin. Now that you've seen the, the destruction and the dysfunction that you brought in your life by rebelling against me. God says, now I rebuke you and lay this charge before you. He's the judge, he's the witness giving testimony, now he's the prosecuting attorney laying out the charge. In verse 22 he says, mark this then. He says, I, I, he's, like, he's like, take note, jot this down, remember this, mark down what I'm saying about your worship and about your words. You who forget God. Forgetting what God is really like. He says, lest I tear you apart. He's judge. He has every right to tear us apart. But hear the heart behind what he's saying. He doesn't say, and I will tear you apart. He says, lest I tear you apart. He doesn't want to tear us apart. Because we are part of his covenant community. Because we have been purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That our worship, our giving, our singing, our serving is all as an expression of thanking God. That is how we are supposed to live. And that's our third and final point. Really quickly, that seeing God as judge produces thankful hearts. It prevents us from being hypocritical, prevents us from being superficial. But the only way to really prevent those things is not to focus on not doing those things, but to focus on simply being thankful for who God is as judge. That he, he wants to caution us, not condemn us. He wants to, he wants to correct us. He, he says, lest I tear you apart. He says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly. The one who responds to who God is as judge. He says, I will show the salvation of God. And what Psalm 50 predicts in the future, he says, if, if you will live a life of thankfulness, I will show you the salvation of God. Ultimately, God showed his salvation for the people of Israel time and time again. Enemy invasion after enemy invasion. Exile after exile. Oppressor after oppressor. God continually showed his salvation until the ultimate moment where God truly fulfilled what is said in verse 23. That he would show the salvation of God in his son Jesus Christ. That the God who didn't want to tear us apart allowed his son to be torn apart. That the judge bore the judgment himself in our place to suffer, to make us his covenant members by sacrifice. The sacrifice of his only son. Thankfulness for that life transforming reality. That is what Asaph is trying to get across. That is what he is building towards, a crescendo of worship for all of us. Yes, we love God as Father. Yes, we recognize him as creator. Yes, we believe he's our provider and our healer, loved ones, but he's judge. And that is a good thing. 
and he is worthy of our worship. He sees all, he knows all, and he doesn't condemn us. He cautions and corrects us because he loves us. Let's thank him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us through seemingly obscure psalms like Psalm 50, God. Thank you that you love us enough that you want to protect us from ourselves, our own sinful tendencies towards hypocrisy, towards being superficial, to, to thinking wrongly about you, God. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would impress this word that's been spoken on our hearts. And God, we're about to do one of the, one of the things that is a, a Christian sacrifice, a New Testament sacrifice, the, the fruit of lips. We are going to sing your praise right now. Lord, not because you need us to, but because you invite us to. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill this place with your praise, God. And that as we go from this place, that we would live lives that are free from hypocrisy, that are focused on your glory, that are rooted in thankfulness and gratitude in the gospel. So, Lord, we recognize that you are the judge, that you are on your throne, but that you invite us to boldly approach you, Lord. The place where angels fear to tread, the place that's filled with a storm and lightning and tempest and a devouring fire, that you invite us in. And so, God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's